we will be continuing to look at the healing of a man born blind in John 9 this morning. That's where we've been studying for several weeks, so we're going to continue there. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at his boldness, how he stood up to the religious leaders who were trying to reject and deny his healing. They actually were trying to deny the fact that he was born blind, and then they were trying to deny the fact that he was healed, and they were also seeking to discredit the one who healed him, the Lord Jesus. And he stood up to them, and uh, they were trying to get him to slander Jesus and incriminate him, but he just wouldn't do it. He just was just stating the facts, and his boldness resulted in excommunication, where the religious leaders, the Jews, as John alludes to them or calls them in his gospel, the Jews, they cast him out of the synagogue. We saw that in verse 34. In Jesus' day, excommunication was one of the worst punishments a person could receive. Obviously, imprisonment or jail would be at the top of the list, or imprisonment or death actually would be at the top of the list. Execution, you lose your life, that's pretty bad. But excommunication was right up there in that top three. It meant being cut off from from all religious life in Israel. You have to understand these are Jewish people, very religious. They have the Mosaic law. They have all of the traditions and things that they follow, and so you were literally cut off from all of that. You couldn't attend worship services at the local synagogues. You couldn't enter the temple and make sacrifices uh, before God, which means you couldn't have your sins forgiven. This is pretty serious. Your parents and family would likely disavow you. Most Jewish families belonged to a local synagogue, and membership in a synagogue was part of a family's socio-religious identity. And so you have families that belong to synagogues. If you had a kind of a renegade family member who threatened to screw that up for the family, guess what your parents would do? They'd kick you to the curb. They'd throw you out of their house. And uh, pretty, pretty serious things have happened here with this excommunication. I would say that if you were excommunicated, you were basically treated as a religious and social outcast, similar to a leper. You weren't made to live in a colony apart from the rest of the culture, but you were treated as a leper in some ways. In this last section, John 9, we shall see the final outcome. What actually transpires next and how this narrative wraps up. I'd like for you guys to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. We're going to look at 35 through 41. John 9, 35 through 41. I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll uh, begin to study it together. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The reference there is to the man who was born blind, who was healed by Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast that guy out. And it says, and having found him, Jesus said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Isn't that cool? 
He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said this, he said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him, those are religious leaders, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And that concludes John 9. I've got eight C's for you this morning. Okay? So I'm going to give you eight C's. Let's begin with number one. And these are the things that that we're drawing out of the text. These are the things that I have found and located, and this is maybe a way for you to frame this text. The first thing that we notice is the cognizance of Jesus. Verse 35a, the cognizance of Jesus. You could say cognizance, you could say awareness. 35a, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. I, I absolutely love that just, what is we got seven words. Seven words. This simple little seven-word sentence or statement, it illustrates the shepherding skills of Jesus. As the good shepherd, and we're going to study Jesus as the good shepherd in John 10. As the good shepherd, Jesus possesses cognizance, a, a total awareness of where his sheep are. And what is going on with them at all times? You think of the context of a shepherd. What kind of a shepherd would a guy be if he did not have any kind of sense or awareness of where his sheep are? If you're a good shepherd, you, you have to know where your sheep are. You have to know what's going on with them at all times. You have to be very cognizant, very aware. And Jesus' awareness of this man's situation shows that he possesses this shepherding ability, that he is cognizant, totally aware of our location and our situation. The eyes of the good shepherd are always on his sheep, watching for danger and looking for ways to help and assist his sheep. His cognizance, his awareness of the man's situation also shows that Jesus was not finished with him. That he has his time of spending time with this guy and interacting with him was not complete, right? He's aware of what's going on with him. He's, uh, you might say, tracking with what's happening with the guy, even though the guy's not right in front of him. He's another part of the temple or wherever he is at the time. But Jesus is tracking with him. He's aware of what's going on with him. He's cognizant, but it shows that he's not done with him. It shows that Jesus had planned to do more than just give him physical sight which must have been extraordinary. If you're born blind and you've never seen anything and you've had to depend entirely on touch and hearing to be able to see, wow, we take that for granted. Of course, if you're like me, you're now bifocals and you, you start to really cherish the sight that you had when you were younger, right? I find myself doing this all day into these classes. You don't actually have to bob your head. You just move your eyes. And this guy... Jesus had planned to do more than just give him physical sight. Earlier, 
in the narrative, Jesus stated that the, the purpose, he literally said that the purpose for the man's blindness was so that the work of God could be displayed in him. Jesus made that statement like there was an overarching purpose for this man's blindness. It wasn't just because he had been born with a disease that killed his eyesight before he ever opened his eyes or any of that, that, that God actually had a sovereign use over this man's life and for his blindness, and that was to display God's works in him. Jesus was referring to the supernatural work of God when he stated that. Notice the plurality of the work of God in, back in verse 3. That's where we began weeks ago. It doesn't say the work of God. It's plural. It says the works of God. This means that God had planned to perform more than one work in this man's life. Hence the reason why Jesus is tracking with him and cognizant of what's going on. In verse 7, we see the first work of God. After washing out his eyes at the pool of Siloam, his blindness was healed and he could see. There's the first work. God supernaturally overcame a physical ailment, blindness. There's the first work. And down in verses 37 and 38, we see a second work where Jesus gives him spiritual sight, salvation. So early on, the first work is to give him physical sight. Later on, it's to give him spiritual sight. We would call that salvation. Now, I would say that this is by far the greater of the two works. Overcoming someone's blindness from birth is, is pretty amazing, pretty powerful, an incredible miracle. In fact, it's stated that it, nothing like that had ever been seen up to that point, if you go back through the narrative. In my opinion, the, the salvation of sinners is, is the greatest work of God because of what it involves. Have you ever stopped to think about this? Restoring a man's sight, Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, rubs it in his eyes, he goes and washes, he's good to go. Think in terms of this greater work of God, the salvation of, of dead sinners. It required the incarnation, God becoming a man, living a, a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God's law, a, a perfect satisfaction a death on the cross to pay for our sins, a burial where Jesus settles our account, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ where he's victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. That's part of our salvation and part of the supernatural work of God in salvation. You also have regeneration. That's where we receive a new heart. You have Illumination, that's where our mind is made new with new knowledge. You know, you pass from not knowing God and knowing anything about Him and being His enemy to actually knowing something about Him and loving Him. What about faith and repentance? Those two gifts that are given and justification, adoption, sanctification. That, that's what happens in your life after you're saved. You begin to be transformed and be made to look like Jesus a little bit at a time each day. And then you have glorification through resurrection. All of those things are, are included in that supernatural work of God, of salvation. Salvation is literally a multifaceted, multi-miracle work of God. 
and there is nothing else like it. Nothing else like it. What other work of God features this many components? I don't want to downgrade his creation or any of those things, but just think about it. What other miracle that he has performed requires or involves so many components? What other work of God required the sending and slaughter of his only begotten son? He didn't do that for half dome. What other work of God requires the soul-penetrating and soul-resurrecting work of the Holy Spirit? Trees don't need that. Salvation is, is not one work. It is a succession of works, one after the other. And it is entirely in a league of its own. What brings God the most glory? You ever stopped and pondered that question? What is it out of all of this that brings God the most glory? The old covenant, which is characterized by law and death? No. It is the new covenant under Jesus Christ, which is characterized by salvation and most importantly, righteousness, that brings God the most glory. Read 2 Corinthians 3.9. In other words, it is the salvation of sinners through Jesus Christ that brings God the most glory, not the condemnation of sinners through the law. Not that those in hell don't bring God glory. God is glorified in and through all things. But the salvation of sinners is unique. And according to God's own word, that is what brings Him the most glory. Number one, the cognizance of Jesus. He's aware of what is going on with this man whom he healed. Number two, the compassion of Jesus. 35b. Huh, this is just a heart melter. It says, and having found him... And having found him... Jesus going and finding the man after hearing what happened to him... And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I want you to pay close attention to the phrasing. I want you to notice the order. It says, having found him. In other words, Jesus found him. And I say this because people today are always saying things like, I found Jesus. I came to Jesus. I made a decision for Jesus. I, I, I. Well, they have the order wrong. No one finds Jesus without first being found by Jesus. That's the truth. We didn't incarnate and go up to be up in heaven where we could find Jesus. Jesus came down. He condescended and came down to us. Jesus is the, the true seeker. Jesus is the finder. Jesus is the initiator. If we have found Jesus, it is because He first found us. Luke 19.10, and there's a whole mess of verses that talk about this. Moments after receiving His physical sight, the, the man literally loses everything else. He may have gained his physical sight, but shortly after that, he lost everything else. And after hearing about his situation, what does Jesus do? Having found him, 
He hears about his plight and he goes to him and he finds him. You see, it's one thing to be cognizant, to be aware of a person's plight. It's quite another to actually go to them and show compassion. As Christians, we tend to theorize compassion more than show it, don't we? And Jesus does this here. He hears about what's going on with him. Filled with compassion, he goes to him. And this illustrates the office and work of Jesus as the great high priest. As good shepherd, he watches over us and protects us. As great high priest, he shows us compassion when we are harassed and helpless. Matthew 9.36. He empathizes with our weaknesses and invites us to confidently approach the throne of grace, which Spurgeon called the cross, amen, where we find mercy and grace in our time of need. Hebrews 4.15-16. When we suffer, Jesus, our great high priest, not only cognizant of what is going on with us, but he actually suffers with us. He Suffers with us. Acts 9, 4. You remember that text, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, you're persecuting my people and that's persecuting me. But even though he's aware of what's going on and he goes to him with lots of compassion, he isn't concerned about the man's earthly losses. Some people will mislead you today and say that that's God's entire focus for your life is what you can gain in this life. I'm not sure that God cares about that. Jesus was not concerned about uh, the earthly losses that he just sustained, his family, his house, these things, because he would have lost it all as an excommunicate. He was Concerned. Jesus was concerned about his, his soul. Concerned about his salvation, right? What good is it for a man to forfeit his soul to gain the world? So Jesus asked him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He didn't say, well, what did you lose? Oh, you lost your parents? That's terrible. You lost your home? That's terrible. You're now living out of the back of your camel? That's horrible. We didn't have cars back then, so. That's just weird. I don't know where that comes from. It's not in the script. All right, these are serious things, and then they have a direct impact on us if we've ever been involved in these situations. But Jesus, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about those things. It's that Jesus is concerned about what is of the first importance, the soul. And you must understand that Jesus is omniscient. What does that mean? It means He's all-knowing. Jesus isn't asking the question because Jesus needs to learn something. How can someone who has all knowledge learn? He can't. He knows. He knows what the answer is. He didn't ask because He needed information. It really isn't even a question. It's an invitation. I like what MacArthur said about it. Jesus invited the man to put his trust in him as the one who revealed God to man. 
Now, do you think that, and I'm just was entertaining the idea here, do you think that Jesus, or do you think that the man actually recognized Jesus' voice right now? Jesus, he'd never seen Jesus, right? He was healed by Jesus, but it happened at a distance at the pool of Siloam, and he comes back, Jesus is not there. He's never seen Jesus with his literal new eyes in sight. He has no idea what Jesus looks like, but I've heard that people who do not have this sense of sight, they're hearing, and they can recognize a voice and these sorts of things. Do you think at this point that as soon as Jesus comes to him and Jesus is standing before him and he begins to speak to him, he's, he's placing the voice with the miracle? You know he was. And he was probably thinking, this sounds like the same man that healed me. Now, how did he respond to Jesus's question, right? Do you believe in the Son of Man? How did he respond? Number three, the curiosity, there's your third seed, the curiosity of the man, verse 36. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? What an interesting question, the curiosity. Well, I know who you're telling me about, but who is it? As a Jewish person, the man would have known what son of man means, how it refers to the Messiah. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, right? The Son of Man. Very popular title, moniker for Messiah. So the man would have made the connection. He would have known that Jesus was referring to the Son of Man. He's referring to Messiah. So the man wasn't curious about Son of Man. I've never heard that before. What is that or who is that? That's not his question. His curiosity is circling around that. Not about the title. He was curious about Jesus' use of the title. It was as if he had said, I, I know who the Son of Man is. He is the promised Messiah. Is he here? Sir, please point him out to me that I may believe in him. That's the way to look at the text. And number four, the fourth C, the confession of Jesus. Verse 37, right? Oh, this is spectacular. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. <laughs> Jesus basically tells him, there's, there's no reason to look around, pal. You're looking at the Son of Man. It is I who is speaking to you. Jesus confesses himself as the Son of Man, a.k.a. Messiah, the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew translation. Christ is the Greek. Christ, Messiah, synonymous term. You're looking at him. You're talking to him. I am he. And within this confession, there is an effectual calling. The effectual calling that we refer to in theology, the effectual calling contains divine power that fully convinces and converts this man's mind and heart. They're not just words that go out, they're words that contain divine power that cause immediate, rapid, instantaneous change. Just think about it for a moment. Jesus had made similar confessions in front of others, and yet their minds and hearts remained unchanged, didn't they? 
In fact, the vast majority of people rejected Jesus. How is it that this man hears and he's changed and does something about it? The effectual power, the effectual calling. Understand that conversion, the conversion of a person, they become a believer, a Christian, a new creation. They are born again. Conversion results only when the Lord's confession is accompanied by the Lord's effectual calling through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jesus said to him, it is I, you've seen him, it is me, it is I, within those words, the Holy Spirit is active and working, using his divine power to change this man's mindset and heart. He is converted. Some would say, well, he's converted in the next verse, you know, in the next section when it talks about how I believe. No, conversion happens before a person believes. Dead sinners can't believe without first being converted. They have to be brought to life, right? That's what the Scripture clearly teaches. But after his conversion, after Jesus speaks those words of divine power and transformation through the Spirit, after his conversion, the man makes a confession of his own and displays a new conviction. Number five, the conviction of the man. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And then it says, and he worshiped him. Now I want you to underline in your Bibles the words Lord, believe, and worshiped. Lord, believe, and worshiped. These three words represent a threefold conviction. By calling Jesus Lord, the man was in effect saying, I surrender to your sovereign lordship and rule over my life. We don't call Jesus, Christians don't call Jesus Lord just because it's in the Bible and that's what we're supposed to do. When we say Lord, we're saying, I submit you are my Lord, you are my master. Greek, you are my Kyrios, ruler. He is a king, right? King of kings. So when this man says, he calls Jesus Lord, this is a, a convincing thing that he does, that he's actually been converted, right? Nobody gets saved without acknowledging Christ as Lord. It says it in Scripture. By calling him Lord, he's saying, I surrender to your lordship. You are the ruler over my life. You are my Lord. By saying, I believe, he was saying, I trust in you as my Savior. Because that's essentially what belief is. Belief is trust. It's not just a thought, yeah, I think he's what he says he is, or I kind of believe that. There is a, a deep desire in holding on to Jesus. There is a trust, like you're clinging to him while the rapids are attempting to sweep you away. He's the branch. You are trusting in him as your Lord and Savior. You're not just believing in Him. You're trusting that He will save you. And by saying, I believe, He's saying, I trust that you are the Savior of the world. I trust that you are my Savior, and I am relying, I'm relying entirely upon you for my salvation. And then by worshiping Jesus, right, the third one, by worshiping Jesus, He was expressing His what? thankfulness for what Jesus had done for him. 
Now, God tested us through Dan's sermon last Sunday, right? That was great. I I love being tested by the Scripture by God. Here is another test. Do we have this threefold conviction? Are we surrendering to Jesus' lordship, sovereign lordship over our lives? Is He your Lord? Are we trusting in Him as our Savior? Meaning, are we trusting entirely in Him, or are we dividing that trust between what He's done and in our good deeds? Because that's not the gospel, and that's not even true faith. We trust in Him alone, not in what we do, in what He did. Are we surrendering to His Lordship? Are we trusting in Him as Savior, Him alone? Are we worshiping Him, living lives of perpetual gratitude to Jesus for what He has done for us? Truly converted people are like this man. They possess this threefold conviction, his lordship, trusting in him, and they worship him. Sadly, we believe and think that worship's just something we do on Sunday. We're actually, in fact, called to live a life of worship. Worship isn't just singing songs. It's how we carry ourselves throughout the week. Am I describing you? Do you have the threefold conviction? I hope so. Another thing to note, earlier I mentioned that the man gained his physical sight, but he lost everything else, right? Pretty awesome to get your sight and then to lose everything else. Not so awesome. His worship of the Lord shows that he understood that he had just acquired the greatest treasure imaginable, salvation. This is a man who just lost everything, gains his sight but loses everything, and then moments later he is worshiping the Lord. Why? Because he has the right perspective. He understands what he just gained, that in light of what he lost, what he just gained is far superior to that which he lost. Would we be... Worshiping the Lord right after losing everything? Maybe if we're reminded of what we've gained in Him. Oh, he's worshiping the Lord. He's calling Him Lord and he's worshiping because he realizes right in this moment what has been done for him. All his sins washed away. He had just acquired the greatest treasure imaginable, the pearl of great price. Matthew 13, 45 through 46. Listen. He may have been poor and destitute according to the world's standards, but by heaven's standard, he was now exceedingly rich, a proverbial Howard Hughes of heaven. Why? Because he possessed a divine inheritance in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.14. And you know what? Salvation is the greatest treasure there is by far. It's so packed with the Lord's blessings, but maybe you're not aware of what Mark 10.30 says. When questioned by his disciples, what is our reward, Lord? We've given up homes, families, we've given up everything for you. Jesus tells them something that is just absolutely mind-blowing. This man may have lost everything in this life, 
but his sight. But he would regain everything he lost, plus more in this life. Oh, are you starting to get into that charismatic prosperity gospel stuff here, Pastor Phil? No, I'm not talking about that garbage at all. I didn't mean to say charismatic's garbage, but prosperity gospel is totally garbage. No, that's not what I'm telling you. Go and read Mark 10.30. Believers, those who follow Jesus, His disciples, this man, you and I, receive a hundredfold in this life. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands as members of Christ's church. Did you know that? Did you know that when you're saved, you're brought into His church where there are too many houses and mothers and brothers and sisters to name and to list and to count? Do you not understand that their resources and who they are become who you are and your resources? What you lose in this life, sacrificing for Christ, you gain in the church. But more importantly, you gain salvation. What or who have you lost, fellow Christian? Your home? We have homes to share with you. Your brother or sister? We are your brothers and sisters. You haven't lost any brothers and sisters. Your mother? We have mothers. Your child or children, our children are your children if you're in Christ. Help us love and care for them. Help us raise them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Your land, our land, our lands is your land. The early church practiced communal living and sharing really, really, really well. And I would say it's very difficult to do that in America, the land of selfishness. But it's what we're called to do. It's what we're called to do. Read Acts 2.45. We need to return to this, beloved, that those other brothers and sisters in the Lord that have lost, that they would gain through us. That's what the Lord commands. It's what He promised to His own disciples. So ask yourself the question, did this man actually lose? No. He may have lost some people, and maybe those relationships would be reconciled later. Who knows? I don't know how it turned out for him later on. I know that he had the most important thing in the universe, salvation, and I know that he gained a hundredfold in the church. What you have lost can be regained in the church. Number six, so that one was the conviction of the man. It's threefold. Number six, the consequence of Jesus' ministry. Verse 39, this is where it gets interesting because Jesus does what he does and then he says really perplexing, interesting things right after. It almost seems out of place, but it's totally not out of place. 
Number six is the consequence of Jesus' work or the consequence of Jesus' ministry. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, MacArthur does a better job of explaining verse 39 than I can, and I'll just quote what he said in his commentary. He said, While Jesus came to save, not to condemn, those who reject his gospel condemn themselves and subject themselves to judgment. Spiritual sight only comes to those who acknowledge that they do not see, who confess their spiritual blindness and their need for the light of the world. Case in point, the man born blind. On the other hand, those who think they see on their own apart from Christ, case in point, the religious leaders, delude themselves and will remain blind. They will not come to the light because they love the darkness and do not want their evil deeds to be exposed. And there he's citing John 3.19. The consequence of Jesus' ministry, if you want to boil it down, the consequence of Jesus' ministry is basically twofold. Some received spiritual sight, the man born blind, etc. Others did not and remained spiritually blind, the religious leaders, etc. So that is that. That's the consequence of Jesus' ministry. Some see, others do not. And really, the way MacArthur put it is brilliant. Only those who recognize that they're blind have any potential at all. Sadly, the world thinks that it sees perfectly, and that's why it's condemned. Number seven, the contempt of the Pharisees. This is their response to Jesus's. Uh, the consequence that Jesus illustrates there, the contempt of the Pharisees, verse 40. <laughs> Look at these guys. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Now, there were a few, a handful of religious leaders nearby, and they were always around because they were always trying to police Jesus, trying to record what he was doing, trying to get a foothold on him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him eliminated. And so there's some of these guys around at this moment while Jesus is interacting with the man born blind and this man gets saved and all that. They're there watching. They're there listening. They heard Jesus' statement. And you know what? They thought Jesus was calling them spiritually blind. And they became filled with anger, filled with contempt for Jesus. And they said basically, are you talking about us? Are we also blind? Now you have to, again, realize who these guys are. They think that they have perfect spiritual vision. They follow the law. They do everything right in their own minds. They think that they have spiritual sight. They think that they have supernatural spiritual sight. These guys are the most religious people on the face of the earth. They thought it, they had it all down. When called out for being spiritually blind, Jesus even calls them blind guides in Matthew 23. They totally rejected Jesus' corrections. They thought they had perfect spiritual sight. But they, these guys were blind as a bat. And they're saying here, I think he's talking smack about us. What's, what's he's, he's, he's looking, there he goes again, condemning us. And look at Jesus' answer to their, are we also blind? Look at our last C, number eight. The correction of Jesus, verse 41. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, 
your guilt remains. This was Jesus' way of saying, yeah, I'm talking about you. Yeah, you're spiritually blind. Of course, that's my paraphrase. I always make Jesus sound really mean or sarcastic. And he did employ sarcasm at times. I don't know why I do that, but maybe it's how I would respond. Thank God I'm not God. Yeah, I'm talking about you. You are spiritually blind, but that's not it. That's not entirely it. The second half of the verse is a little different than you think. What Jesus is actually saying there, right? Yeah, you're blind. I'm talking about you. But if you confess your spiritual blindness, if you admit your need, I will remove your guilt, your sin. If you continue to reject me, What does he say at the end of the verse? Your guilt remains. I'm astonished at at Jesus all the time when I read and study the Gospels and how these violent, hateful men and how Jesus corrects them sternly but still invites them to believe, to repent. It's amazing. I wouldn't do that. I tend to give people three strikes. Some, I give them one. Depending on the offense, ah, you're out, pal. And Jesus just, yeah, you're blind, but guess what? You don't have to stay blind. That's what Jesus is saying. That compassion, that, that love, it's that agape of love, a love there even when you're being hated maliciously. Jesus extends that invitation to them here. And if you stay blind, your, your guilt remains. I can deal with it. I like how Calvin put it, when a spiritually blind man is desirous to obtain deliverance, God is ready to assist him. But they who, insensible to their diseases, despise the grace of God, are incurable. Closing. Just... The whole point, what is the title of this series? You might be thinking, gosh, this guy, it's like he beats a dead horse every week. He always talks about believing. He always says, do you believe, do you believe, do you believe, you better believe. Well, that's the whole point of John's gospel again. It's the whole point of the series. Every sermon is going to end with evangelism. Every sermon is going to end because of the nature of John and the way it's written and structured is going to end with a call to repentance, a call to believe. I just have a question. Have you been saved by the Lord Jesus by grace through faith? Do you have spiritual sight? Do you? If the answer is yes, see what you have in Christ. I think it's pretty easy to get fogged up and forget about what we have in Christ as believers. I want you to see what you have in Christ today. You have the priceless, priceless spiritual blessings of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Forgiveness, 
acceptance, inheritance, the seal of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole list of them there. If those things don't get you excited, and you probably have no spiritual pulse, you're probably a spiritual corpse. When I read that text, it just I'm just filled with so much joy. You are a spiritual billionaire. You are a spiritual billionaire, and according to God's standards, according to the heaven of uh, the standard of heaven, it is far and infinitely superior to have spiritual wealth than to have physical wealth. Physical wealth can be cool and. Supposed to use it for the right reasons, for the glory of God, for the cause of Christ, but spiritual wealth is of infinite value. Physical wealth will not bring you joy. It can make you happy for a moment. Spiritual wealth will fill you with joy and keep you full. You're a spiritual billionaire if you're a believer, if you're in Christ. You have a hundredfold in this life. You might be thinking, well, I don't have a whole lot of money. I, I don't have this. I don't have that. I lost my mother. I lost these things. Think of what you gained in and through Christ's church. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and, and, and lands and whatever, whatever your need. The church is supposed to meet our needs. We meet our needs. We meet each other's needs. You're, you're not just a, a, a physical pauper. The church is here to help you as best it can. We need to get back to that Acts chapter 2, first century communal living, man, where believers were what? Meeting together, submitting to the apostles, teaching, breaking bread together, sharing everything. They had everything in common. Where is that? There's too many of our brothers and sisters going without. They shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Look, if I'm describing you, continue to live out that threefold conviction. Surrender to Christ's lordship daily, even moment by moment, right? Some would tell you, well, you surrender to the Lord and that's it, and that's a one-time act. Are you kidding me? That is a daily choice for the believer. Each day you have to be like Joshua and you have to wake up and before your feet touch the ground, you have to say, this day I choose to serve the Lord. This day He's my Lord and I'm going to submit. It's not just, oh, I just did it one time. That's impossible with this flesh. Every day I have to choose His Lordship. Live out the threefold conviction. Surrender to His Lordship daily, moment by moment. Keep trusting in Him as your Savior, as your provider, as your all in all. Keep worshiping Him with a thankful heart in all that you do. In all that you do. If this threefold conviction is absent in your life, it could be because you have not been saved by the Lord Jesus, by grace through faith. It could be that you're still spiritually blind. I'll be the first to admit that I frustrate those three things at times and mess them up, but for the most part, they should be built into your Christian DNA. If they're not there at all or one's missing, something's wrong. 
my encouragement to you this morning is don't be like the religious leaders. Don't be like the Pharisees who scoffed at the Lord, who spurned his offer of light and salvation. Jesus is not just the light of the world. He is the only light of this world. There's no other light. There's no other source for spiritual sight. There's no other source for spiritual light. He's it. Be like the man who was born blind. Humble yourself and receive Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who reveals God to man. Receive him by faith, and you will begin to see like never before. Everything will change. Everything. You'll see everything differently. Everything. Amen.